Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined a little bit later on by Fernando Vale, who is the Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. But first, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the latest issue of Shell Magazine that's getting ready to be released. Our feature is Ann Bradbury, the CEO of American Exploration and Production Council. This is a great group that we caught up with that actually is located in Washington, D.C. It's a group that really does help our elected officials understand better energy and energy policy. And right about now, we really need a lot of those organizations to help our elected officials start making better energy regulations to help with these crazy gas prices that we're dealing with. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming event happening in San Antonio on August the 10th. It is our annual State of Energy in San Antonio, Texas. This year, it will be held at the Embassy Suites. Uh, Our feature is Ann Bradbury, who is coming from D.C. to talk at our State of Energy, along with Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Mike Howard, the CEO of Howard Energy, and Jason Modlin, who is the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. It's definitely a luncheon that you want to attend. There'll be lots of networking opportunities as well as great insight and information on the great energy transition that is occurring as we speak. And now it is time for me to welcome on my guest for the segment today, Robert Raitbeer. Robert, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Now, I want to start with you have a lot of experience under your belt. Currently, you are working with Protom Energy. You're the Director of Environmental Health and Safety. You're also a chemical engineer by trade, and you're a senior Forbes contributor as well. So you have a lot of experience in the energy industry, and you have decided that you are coming on the show and helping me from time to time to talk a little bit about what seems to be a a continuing ball of mess when we talk about the Biden administration and their energy policies. Let's jump in. This past week, we had a lot of movement coming up from the Supreme Court on many issues. One of them specifically was the powers that they were limiting the EPA on uh, how they will power or cut admissions looking at the environment and how how much do, do they control and have the powers to do that? And pretty much the Supreme Court kind of told them, hold on, not so fast. So explain what happened with the Supreme Court's ruling and how it's going to affect the EPA moving forward. Okay, so basically, I mean, EPA has the authority to regulate dangerous pollutants. And Supreme Court ruled that they overstepped their bounds because CO2 is not defined as a, as a harmful pollutant. And so what, what uh, the, the Clean Power Plan did under Obama, it tried to regulate entire grids and said, you know, you're going to make the grid cleaner. And um, the Supreme Court said that is, uh, that's overstepping your bounds there. Um, you, you know, you can't do that. Now, now, it could still happen that through legislation, you could say, okay, we're going we're gonna to green up the grid. But the Supreme Court said you can't make that move through the EPA. And, um, you know, it affects mainly coal-fired power plants. And, you know, it's true that coal is the 
number one source of carbon emissions in the in the world. It's it's the largest single um, uh, source of carbon emissions. But I think most people don't know it's primarily China. I mean, what we contribute to the to the global emissions as far as coal goes is pretty small. And we sure we should be doing our part. But um, you know, I've I've looked at the CO two emissions around the world before, and what we contribute is a tiny fraction of what you know, Asia and India, um, the, the, the whole Asia Pacific, the China and India, the whole Asia Pacific region, um, you know, the US and Europe together produce about a third of the emissions of, uh, of China and India and the Asia Pacific region. So that's really the most important thing we could focus on right there if we really wanted to get carbon emissions down. I mean, I, I think long-term we are gonna phase out coal in the US um, it's been on a long-term decline, even you know before clean power plant, coal had been on its way out. Uh, in fact, fracking made that happen. Fracking at cheap natural gas is the single most responsible factor for putting coal plants out of business and coal companies out of business. And, and I think people, most people don't realize that. It was, it was a fracking of natural gas that really put the coal industry in a bind, more so than anything else. Well, the importance, though, of the ruling kind of said that it has to go back to Congress and that Congress will have to legislate what type of authority, if we move into the green, what will those rules look like and right. not a unelected uh, agency can be can make those uh, determinations. Right. And, I, and thank you for pointing out that other countries do far more of admitting uh, all of this stuff into the air, specifically China, with China stating that they're going to be bringing on a new cold uh, fire power plant one a month or something to continue to power their, uh, you know, their country. And that's not helping us at all. So when you say um, we need to look at this as a global uh, situation, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think people don't um, realize China burns more than half the world's coal. I mean, China by itself, more than half the world's coal. That's a that's a major, major source of CO2 emissions. And the United States can certainly lead the way, but we can't do it alone either, which is right. you know, part of you know why the show is popular is it, it kind of really talks about what are the real problems. And until we start figuring out the global situation, it seems like it's at the cost and on the backs of the American taxpayers. So let's talk about that. Uh, let's switch gears. Biden is blaming gas station uh, owners uh, for the high prices. And obviously that's not true, but they're doing a lot of backpedaling right now because there's so much coming at them. And I think it's maybe an avalanche of really bad PR. And even the mainstream media now is saying, we don't even understand what he's, uh, this administration, do they really even understand or have a handle on what's happening in the energy sector? Give me your thoughts on how bad is it for the Biden administration right now? I don't know if they don't understand or they do understand and they think it's just more popular to blame the oil industry. You know, one of the things I've warned and warned and warned about, about this energy transition, if you try to go too fast and you cut off your supply, we get into the situation we have now because people still need oil. And so, you know, it's all well and good to say, hey, we're going to stop oil development and we're going to we're going to handicap the oil industry. We're not going to talk to them. We're going to we're going to make things hard on them. And then you get to a point where they're not investing enough and when we don't have enough oil, because basically you've told them, hey, we don't need oil. We don't need gas. And so they're shutting down refineries that are not profitable and they're 
they're not investing multi-billion dollars in projects that are going to take, you know, 10 or 20 years to pay out because you're sending them the message, we don't need that oil. And then suddenly, oh, we don't have enough oil. And that's the, that, that is the real risk with the energy transition. I'm all for an energy transition. I think we, we've, we've got to move to renewables ultimately. But along the way, if you don't ensure that you have adequate oil supplies and adequate, you know, fuel supplies for consumers, you're going to get into these situations where you have really spiking prices. And so now that we do, the Biden administration is pointing fingers at the oil industry. And I, I pulled up a tweet from Biden the other day from, uh, I think it was 2020, where he said, you know, I will always take responsibility. I will not blame others. And he is absolutely blaming others for a problem that is not their problem. I mean, the, the gas stations don't have much control over what the price of gasoline is. It's, this is this comes down to fundamental supply and demand and, you know, all the way back to COVID when we lost a lot of supply. And then, you know, again, you've got the climate where we're saying, hey, we're not going to need oil. And so oil producers, they're investing. I mean, rig count is up. Rig count has grown by 60 percent over the past year and oil production is up about a million barrels a day. But it's not back to where it was pre-COVID. And, and part of that is you're sending a message. Hey, we don't need you guys anymore. Well, and Robert, you brought up a good point, which is the refining capacity. It has been on a decline for years. And then to make matters worse, we have a blockage from this administration that they want to see no um, federal leasing occurring and also now offshore. He's moved to that. So let's talk about that real quick, too. The block on new offshore drilling in the Atlantic and Pacific. Tell me about your your thoughts on that. So Biden campaigned on that. He's going to stop... uh federal oil development. And uh, there are certain areas that he's blocked off. But ironically, in the past week or so, environmentalists have been up in arms because they opened up areas in the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, you know, you got the NRDC saying, hey, you said you weren't going to do this. But again, he's bowing to the political realities of uh, high oil prices. And, and um, you know, the thing about it, you, you can have a, a very progressive sort of energy policy, but if it results in high gas prices, you're not going to win re-election. And so you're not going to be able to see your policies through. And that's the political reality he's, he's bowing to. Now, I don't know if he'll open up the Atlantic. Uh, there's still a lot of oil to be produced in the Gulf of Mexico. But, you know, I, I know a lot of environmental groups have come out criticizing him in the last week because they said, hey, we are going to open up some leases in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And the environmentalists weren't happy about it. Well, we do know that they're a large funder of their campaign, the Democrats' uh, overall party. However, even the Democrats are running scared with Biden's numbers, and they are the lowest, I think, that any president has ever had, last I checked. Um, and the American people are pretty upset, too, with these super, super high electricity prices, gas prices at the pump, food is up. Um, it's affecting everything in these poor energy policies. So it'll be interesting to see how far he moves and pivots to try to loosen up some of the regulations. Um, do you think that we will see any kind of headway from them here uh, in the next couple of months of really changing their position and making things better? Um, you know, I don't know. They, you know, they asked Biden, are you going to meet with the oil companies? And he said, no. But he's, he's, uh, he said, my people are meeting with them. But he's, you know, he's going to Saudi Arabia. So, um, you know, that to me sends a very bad message. And, and um, I think it's it's really in poor form to criticize and throw your domestic oil industry under the bus, and then you're holding out fig leaves to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, it, it's 
I, I just don't get it. I don't get why you wouldn't sit down with the heads of the oil companies and at least better understand, okay, what are the issues? And then explain those issues. Don't say, uh, you know, do your patriotic duty and reduce oil prices. I mean, that's like asking Apple to sell their shares for less. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way oil is bought and sold on the market. And uh, Apple has no control over what their stock price is at. I mean, they can, they can make announcements and they can do a few things to maybe manipulate it a little bit. But ultimately, it's how much buyers are willing to pay. And that's the way oil and gas prices are set. And um, I, I don't think Biden or, or you know, Bernie Sanders or many of the Democrats understand this. They're going to understand it come November when they are completely wiped out of office because the American people are pretty upset about it. That is the pulse. Uh, I know that for sure. Robert, thank you for stopping in on the segment and talking to us a little bit about what's happening currently in the administration and everything energy. We look forward to having you back next month on the show when you join me again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, Fernando Vale, who is the Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, welcome back to In the Wall Patch Radio Show. My pleasure. Great to be here, Kim. Well, I wanted to have you back on because we received some information. You guys are reporting on what seems to be the problem with the refining capacity here in the United States. And I think it's real important that we discuss what seems to be the problem? Because everyone understands a lot about what's happening um, in the way of uh, gas prices at the pump, and they realize that it's on the rise, um, and they're hearing a lot of media reports. But refineries have a lot to do with what's causing these high prices at the pump as well. The U.S. is, is having a lot of closing in the refinery uh, area, 28 uh billion barrels of refining capacity we've lost over the past decade. At the same time, though, um, your um, analyst or your intelligence at Bloomberg is showing that we have an estimated 3.5 million barrels being put on the market. So why, if we have this indifference between we're losing refining capacity, but we're gaining barrels of crude, why is this not working well uh, for the consumer at the pump? Um, thanks, Kimmy. Yeah, we've closed a lot of refining capacity over the past um, decade and, and mostly since the pandemic. It's about 2.8 million barrels a day globally, uh, the U.S., um, North America in general, and then um, in Western Europe, we closed the bulk of that refining capacity. Uh, there are several issues behind it. The, the biggest one is uh, regulatory uh, burden on it that has made it more difficult uh, for these refiners to plan um, significant upgrades that are necessary and that take uh, over a decade to get paid back. That's the case, for example, for some of the, the refineries, even in the Gulf Coast, which is a very active refining complex, uh, but especially in Europe, where you have to make significant investments to reduce your emissions. And when you look forward, you see a scenario where um, those, those countries, and in, 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 in the case of some U.S. states, are actually making it increasingly more difficult for you to see higher fuel demand. So uh, an example is California putting a, a ban on internal combustion engine vehicle sales uh, from 2035 onwards. Uh, we've seen uh, several refineries in California being shuttered. Uh, Marathon Petroleum, Petroleum's uh, San Francisco refinery, Mart Martinez, uh, 
Philip 66, Santa Ana and Rodeo also uh, uh, slated to be closed because that state has made it much more difficult for them to uh, see a perspective of, of growth in that market. Um, meanwhile, as you said, we're getting uh, product, US crude production has gone through the roof with the shale revolution, uh, and that's turned us into a net exporter of crude. Um, but there are uh, a lot of imbalances as well, because uh, for example, the Jones Act doesn't let us take some of that crude from the Gulf Coast to the East Coast or even refined products. So we wind up importing refined products from Canada and Western Europe to the East Coast uh, while exporting diesel and gasoline to Latin America and other markets. Well, Fernando, let's back up a little bit and uh, talk about the Jones Act, because I'm not really sure that our listeners quite understand uh, why this is in place, what does it cover, and how is it really preventing us from getting on track with our energy crisis or needs? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a very old act. It's over 100 years old. It was meant to uh, promote the naval industry uh, in the U.S. Who's, uh, it was put forth by a senator from Washington State. And basically what it says is that every shipment between U.S. ports has to be done in a U.S. built, U.S. flagged, and U.S. crewed uh, vessel. So there are very few of those because we don't have a great naval industry anymore in this country. Um, very few of those that, that are slated to carry uh, crude oil and refined products. So because there are so few of them, it becomes prohibitively expensive to send something from uh, the Houston Ship Channel to New York Harbor, for example. It's cheaper to uh, bring it uh, in a tanker from uh, Rotterdam or from uh, the Isle of Jersey to, 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 to New York Harbor than it is from, from Houston, for example. How many refineries is your intelligence showing should be um, coming offline. There's quite a few that are coming offline and there's a variety of different reasons why they're, they're coming offline. A lot of them just really um, are closing their, their old refineries. Um, and we have no plans in place for any new refineries. So when does this kind of hit the wall, so to speak, here where we'll really see a problem with lack of refining and that's what we need to uh, refine and put it into our gas tanks or to ship them, you have to have it refined from when it comes out of the ground. So when does this uh, all happen? Well, it's already happened. We are at 40-year highs on crack spreads. So crack spreads, the difference between gasoline and diesel and the, the at the refinery and the crude oil uh, that you, you process it. Um, so we are over $40 for both gasoline and diesel. Uh, that situation is significantly worse in the East Coast than it is at the, in the Gulf Coast, because again, a lot of the closures have been in the East Coast. We had uh, a lot, uh, we've lost over 400,000 barrels a day since 2019 in the East Coast. Um, and so the cost to get the, the fuel to, to these consumers, still a very significant fuel market is, is, is very expensive and that creates that distortion. Um, we, we are likely to lose even more refining capacity. Lando Bissell that owns uh, Houston Refining has said that they plan on, on closing their plant uh, by 2023 if they can't find a buyer. Uh, from what I understand, it requires significant upgrades to remain competitive. And again, the regulatory framework is just not there for you to, to sanction a, 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 an investment that would likely be into hundreds of millions of dollars and require uh, 10 to 15 years to pay back. Um, as I mentioned, Philip 66 will close, uh, is planning on closing the Rodeo refinery uh, in Northern California. 
2023. It will be converted into a renewable diesel facility. Um, and there are others that could still come offline depending on um, depending on the costs associated. And we saw, for example, the Alliance refinery. Fernando, hold on. Let's take a quick break because I do want to come back. I want to visit each one of these refineries because some of the refineries are also switching gears and going into more greener alternative type of refining capacities too. But we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. We'll be right back. Join us on Wednesday, August the 10th at 1130 a.m. for the State of Energy Luncheon in San Antonio at the Embassy Suites on I-10 and Landmark Parkway. This year's keynote speaker is Ann Bradbury, the CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, and Jason Modulin, president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. The moderator of the event will be Omar Garcia from the Port of Corpus Christi. For tickets and for more information, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Fernando Vale, who is a senior industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, before the show, we were talking about what seems to be the problem with the refining capacity. And it is, of course, having an impact on all of the consumers, us, uh, and what we pay more at the pump. It also is coming uh, to the consumer's pocketbook for the fact that the refineries are actually paying more uh, to refine uh crude as well. Let's get back into a real problem, which is we're losing refining capacity. Um, And it doesn't seem like uh, this administration and and even uh, Congress have a plan in action. It doesn't seem like this is really uh, on too many people's radar that this is going to be a problem that is already starting, as you said earlier, to progress into a really big negative problem. So ConocoPhillips announced they were going to close and go into uh, kind of switch gears, if you will, and go into a more greener type of refining. You said Limedale Basin also has acknowledged they're closing unless they find a buyer. What are some of the other refineries that are also announcing they're either closing or switching gears? Yeah, there are several that are going into the the renewable diesel space and converting uh, hydro treatment capacity they use to produce diesel to produce renewable diesel. Uh, HF Sinclair, for example, has converted their Cheyenne refinery in Wyoming. Um, CVR Energy uh, is converting converted part of their Winniewood in Oklahoma uh, to produce renewable diesel, and they're considering also doing the same in Coffeeville. Uh, while PBF Energy is potentially taking an idled uh, unit in the Chalmette refinery in Louisiana to produce renewable diesel. Uh, There are some issues there as well because a lot of these uh, units are taking uh, uh, oil, uh, food oils that would uh, corn and soybeans and um, palm oil and to use that as the input to to create renewable diesel. And that in itself is pushing uh, food prices up. And they're competing with 
farmers, they're competing with restaurants for that input um, and, and raising the, the overall cost of food as well as the cost of, uh, of refined products. Uh, so we see that, that not all these projects are actually going to get built at the end of the day um, because uh, of the, the pressures on inflation, especially food inflation, that have already started to even compress the margins uh, for the refiners themselves. And you had said also that when you're talking about building a new refinery, um, one that is going to process crude, um, the amount of money that it's going to take for them to produce it, and then how long does it take for them to uh, their shareholders to to uh, you know regain their investment in in a climate where it appears as though the Biden administration. Um, is very uh, uh, anti-oil and gas. Is there any refinery company that would actually want to do this considering the climate right now, uh, the circumstances with all the regulatory hurdles they would have to get over uh, even to do this? So the the likelihood of that, what are you seeing? Probably not going to happen, making the matter much worse. Yeah, it's, it's highly unlikely. We haven't really had a, a brand new refinery built since the 1970s, which is the Garyville plant. We've had some condensate splitters, but they don't really produce end products. And then we had some rebuilds. And when you look at rebuilds, for example, you have a great glimpse of why it's so challenging to build a refinery. Uh, Sonova's Energy from Canada is, is rebuilding the Superior plant in Wisconsin. And that plant is being rebuilt with insurance proceeds and Today, their overall cost, uh, it would take over eight years at today's crack spreads to get payback. And that is 40 year high crack spread. So if we, if you talked about a scenario where we go back to a normal uh, production environment, uh, normal margin environment, that's probably 20 plus years. And we just don't have that kind of visibility. And I don't think any uh, CEO would be rewarded for sanctioning a new project like that. Um, and so we don't see anything uh, happening, uh, certainly not for Greenfield, but even restarting the recently shuttered refineries, uh, they, they can cost almost as much as rebuilding them, depending on the size and the complexity of the plant. Mm-hmm. To retool them. Well, I know that there is somebody listening and is desperately wondering crack spreads. So when we get back from break, we're going to drill down into that one. And then I do want to talk to you about the Biden administration and um, what appears to be um, a a very uh, difficult stance if you're in oil uh, or producing as an oil and gas producer, uh, the regulatory environment that you're dealing with. But we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. and We'll be right back. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium plus you can earn double dividends that'll go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at texasmutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Fernando Vale, who is the Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, uh, before the break, we were discussing 
um, the problems with the refinery capacity here in the United States and how it's obviously led to higher prices, not just at the pump, which is where most Americans are seeing it and feeling it, but also now it's trickled into everything else we do, groceries, uh, livestock, everything is being affected by um, what's happening in, I believe, uh, the regulatory sector uh, in D.C., as well as uh, not having enough capacity. Um, but you mentioned crack spreads, and I, wanna, I want you to break that down because crack spreads are not something that's talked about a lot unless you're in that circle. And when we talk to everybody, I want everybody to understand what a crack spread is when we talk about refinery. So uh, the lingo is that when you uh, convert oil into refined products, you're cracking it. And so a crack spread is just a difference between uh, the basket of products you make with a barrel of oil and that barrel of oil. So typically, um, a barrel of oil will say roughly produces 50% gasoline, 33% diesel jet fuel, and then the remainder um, will be asphalts, fuel oil, and heavier products. So we calculate the value of all those by, uh, those refined products, add them up, and subtract them from um, Brent or WCI, whichever benchmark they're using. That's roughly how a crack spread is calculated. So it's just a measure of how much money a refiner is making uh, for each barrel that it processes. So we have all these issues when we look at um, the oil, you know, oil and gas producers are dealing with exporting issues, importing ex- issues due to the Jones Act. We talked about that earlier. We also are losing millions of barrels, 2.8 on refining capacity here. Um, we've been in that uh, loss for uh, the past decade. Um, and now I want to switch gears and talk about uh, the regulatory environment in which the operators are really having to uh, deal with with uh, the Biden administration and this and the Democratic leadership, quite frankly, on how they are planning to switch uh, us, uh, the American people, from crude and oil, uh, crude and natural gas to uh, more greener producing energy for us and the planet. And I want to ask you the Green New Deal. Um, specifically. This is kind of where we're going with all of these different changes. Um, The Biden administration not wanting to, uh, I mean, they talk a lot about everybody needs to do their part. Operators need to do their part. Um, uh, um, Fuel stations need to pass the uh, cost savings on to the consumer. But yet the regulatory environment that they have put uh, the operators in and of course the uh, store owners that are selling the gasoline, it's almost impossible for them to do this. Talk to me about, um, when you listen to the Biden administration, he says this is just the cost of transitioning from being dependent on oil and gas and now being dependent or moving to a greener way of doing things. But there's no possible way that an operator can pass the cost savings on to the consumer, nor can the gas station owner. So I want you to explain in what you're seeing in your intelligence where is the problem and the disconnect in the Biden administration not understanding this problem? I think um, there is just a, a matter of economics where uh, the higher oil prices and higher gasoline prices are, are, are helping to promote uh, more investments. And there is a, a lagging uh, issue in, in uh, getting production. You can't just turn on taps and turn off taps. Uh, it takes time to get that productivity back up. And we went through something very uh, difficult, not just for the oil industry, but for the world at large with uh, COVID uh, that led to a significant decline in production, uh, especially in the, the shale patch. And we are recovering. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen bottlenecks not just in um, 
in the oil patch itself, but everywhere. So we've had difficulties sourcing sand, sourcing labor, uh, sourcing uh, rigs, um, and, and, and that will take time, but it is resolving itself. We've gone from 11 million barrels a day to 12 million barrels a day today, and we're going to continue to grow over the next several months, hopefully uh, reaching back to that 13.3 million barrel high that we had in 2019 uh, sometime in the next year or two. Um, and I think that will translate into easing some of our concerns about supply, but that alone is not enough. We, we demand about 98 million barrels a day globally, close to 100, depending on the on the economics. And we need production from other parts of the world. And we've seen some acknowledgement that uh, the transition is going to take longer than expected. Uh, the EU just uh, announced that nuclear and natural gas are being uh, branded as, as green energy uh, in, in respect to their taxonomy. Uh, that will allow for greater use of natural gas and nuclear that will ease uh, some of the concerns about electricity prices in, in, in Europe. Uh, that's also good news for the US because that helps us to export more natural gas to Europe. Um, right. And, and so, and to hopefully that moves the needle as well in the pol uh, policy here to enable more uh, approvals for natural gas export facilities, more natural gas pipelines, which we, we certainly need in order to move what is an abundant source of uh, supply, of especially natural gas in North America uh, to our, our, uh, our allies in Europe. I think it's pretty clear that everyone understands the United States is producing the cleanest forms whether it's uh, crude oil or natural gas. We have uh, a lot of regulatory bodies that oversee the process from the EPA. Um, here in Texas, we have um, TCEQ, which is the air quality. There's Waters Over America. There's quite a few regulatory bodies that uh, an operator has to go through to build a pipeline, to uh, produce or drill for any oil, crude, you name it. Um, and I think because of these standards in place, the United States has really uh, shown that we can do it the greenest and the cleanest, if you will, versus other countries that maybe not don't really have all these regulatory bodies in place. Um, but it seems like the Biden administration, while they want lower prices for the consumer and they want more energy, they want to outsource it to, to other countries that really are not doing it as clean or green. So we're kind of missing the point of if we're going to make these transitions and care about the climate and what's happening with the climate, um, we should probably be looking to the United States as being the leader of this. And yet we're, we seem to be outsourcing a lot of it. When we come back from break, I want to cover since January 27th, quite a few directives, executive orders, the administration has done um, in this consistent uh, regulatory stronghold over oil and gas and get your opinions on um, can some of these regulations be lifted if he really is wanting for us to contribute uh, on a global stage and help our allies with natural gas and production by helping loosen some of these regulatory orders that he keeps putting into place, which kind of is counterproductive for us to do that. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the World Patch Radio Show. And we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers invites you to their annual conference on September 14th and 15th at the Hotel Drover in Fort Worth, Texas. The event will feature author and energy expert Alex Epstein during the industry luncheon on September 15th. It's the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual conference, September 14th and 15th in Fort Worth, Texas. For tickets and hotel reservation information, go to TexasAlliance.org. That's TexasAlliance.org. 
Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Oilfield Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oilfield parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923, and visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. We're back. You're listening to End the Wall Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Fernando Vale, who is a senior industry analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Fernando, before the break, um, you know, I have a sheet sheet of at least 100 different policies since he was elected that have uh, that Biden has basically put into place that has really limited production here in the United States and globally to help our allies. And, you know, everyone remembers day one the executive order canceling the Keystone XL pipeline. But there have been more. Um, Biden has issued an executive order announcing a moratorium on all new oil and gas leases in public lands. Also, this applies to offshore waters and is also considering uh, federal oil and gas permitting and leases practices. The Interior Department is conducting interviews for permitting and leasing policies. Another executive order is limiting or eliminating federal fossil fuel subsidies wherever possible, disadvantaging the oil and gas and natural gas compared to other industries um, that receive similar federal tax treatment uh, and other energy sources which receive direct subsidies. And this list goes on and on and on on the constant um, regulatory uh, hurdles that these operators have to uh, adhere to to even get any work done. And I guess what I want you to tell me is, we talk about these other countries producing more barrels, but when we're releasing uh, millions of barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is really designed for wartime acts, we're releasing that as pretty much a Band-Aid over what it's really designed to do. Plus, we're being limited here in the United States, the operators, where do you see what country is going to step up and replace what we're losing? The, the the production hasn't really been severely impacted in the short term because luckily the Texas uh, today is still a leading uh, growth engine for U.S. production. And so the regulations don't necessarily have that much impact except for the federal lands in New Mexico. But as you said, uh, the U.S. does is the cleanest producer along with Canada. Um, of oil and gas and the regulations are very stringent. Um, I think even the the, the producers, uh, you know, your ExxonMobil's, Chevron's, uh, ConocoPhillips of the world have lobbied for a carbon tax that would try to level that playing field uh, across uh, globally. And um, so they are engaging in, if you look at their recent investments, they are engaging as well in, in transition investments, including carbon capture. I think they are making uh, the moves that necessary to reduce the, their footprint. So I'm confident that we have the capacity to to continue reducing emissions. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, oil and gas, uh, especially natural gas, the switch from coal to natural gas has been the main uh, reason for reductions in carbon emissions globally. 
uh, over the past decade. And I'm confident that that will continue to be the case as we uh, export more of our production abroad. Um, and you mentioned other countries that can step up. Um, the, the reality is that we haven't really invested heavily in exploration uh, since 2014 when we had the first oil price, uh, price pressure. So really the only places that are growing today are Brazil, which does have a pretty strong uh, environmental framework, uh, perhaps not as strong as the US or Canada, but, but relatively strong. Uh, Guiana, which is being developed by ExxonMobil primarily in Hess, which uh, follows very strong environmental protocols. So uh, that, that's a good that's a good thing. And then OPEC, which as you mentioned, uh, does not have as, as strong a uh, regulatory framework as we do. Um, but I think when we look at a scenario where we're energy constrained, uh, things like flaring of natural gas now are probably looked upon as a waste of a resource. So I hope that that will be a move that the industry makes to, to restrict flaring uh, because we, we want to use that methane for power generation and, and fueling. And as we talked in, a, in the earlier block, uh, there is an acknowledgement that we need oil and gas for longer than we previously anticipated, uh, perhaps not news for uh, all of us in the industry. Um, but I think what's, you know, the positive I take from uh, this push is, is, is that the industry is continuously looking for ways to reinvent itself and improve its, uh, it, how clean it can produce. And I, I'm very excited about some of the carbon capture technology that's being developed, because uh, if we can continue to use our current infrastructure, uh, continue to, to, to produce oil and gas, but do it so uh, in a cleaner way and capture some of that carbon and even use that carbon for uh, electricity generation, for example, uh, that really makes, uh, it's the best of both worlds. We, we would have a cleaner uh, industry and uh, more value for both society and the producers. Well, you know, I do not want to leave the show on a negative. Uh, I want to leave it on a positive. And so, uh, you know, in the oil patch, we attended uh, a luncheon and it was a conference that the Greater Houston Partnership put on with their uh, committee which is called HETI and it's Houston energy, Trans, uh, energy Transition. And there's about 14 of the largest companies that have gotten involved in helping uh, sustain energy transition in a viable way. And they're all committed to finding greener ways of doing it. I was very pleasantly pleased to see how the Greater Houston Partnership was able to pull all of these operators uh, together and service companies and, and get commitments out of them. And I do think that we'll see a lot of more talk and, and actual work going into carbon capture and other areas that they see promising. Um, hydrogen was also a, a main leader for them as well. And I just kind of think that while we are on the path for energy transition, and it's, I think it's an exciting time, I just think that the elected officials have um, they're, they need to do their part and explain to the consumers, this is not a quick fix. And when we go too fast, uh, we experience what we're experiencing right now, which is a lot of chaos, a lot of misunderstanding, price uh, prices that are just accelerating. Um, and I think we need to talk realistically about we're going to make that transition, but it has to slow down just a little bit. My question is, um, at Bloomberg Intelligence, are you guys following any of what's happening here in Houston, because that's where we're located, and the Greater Houston Partnership and what they're working on at HETI? Absolutely. Uh, again, we, we're engaged with uh, all of the producers, and we, we 
see the investments being made on carbon capture, biofuels. You know, Exxon has some really interesting uh, research in algae as a liquid fuel. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that, as you said, energy is a building block for our society. It's the only way we know how to raise uh, the standard of living. And, you know, we have 5 billion people in emerging economies that need to raise their standard of living significantly. And so we'll need more, more and more affordable energy and cleaner energy. And I think those developments can be uh, crucial in, in getting us uh, to that level. And I think that's the industry's role ultimately is to provide affordable energy to, to the world that enables development. And, and it has done so. And I, I think, you know, there are growing pains, uh, you know, oil and gas is still only less than 150 years old. So we're learning how to develop it better. And I'm confident, on, as you said, on the carbon capture is very exciting, um, but also the, some of the biofuels uh, I, I, I'm sure we'll see some breakthroughs in the next 10 years that will take us uh, to new levels of uh, breakthroughs in, in heavy transportation where we haven't really seen many gains over the past two decades. Very good. Well, Fernando, thank you so much for coming on in the oil patch to explain to us what is going on with refining capacity. Thank you for being a guest. My pleasure. Thank you. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.